Welcome to episode 190 of On The Schmooze. Let's do this. Welcome to On The Schmooze, the podcast that highlights talented people from different fields, explores how they built strong networks, and overcame challenges on their way to becoming successful leaders. Now here's your host, Robbie Samuels. It's kind of exciting. That's what one of my coaching clients said after we were brainstorming whether or not to postpone his big event. As events began to get canceled all around the world, I had been worrying about him and his big event this fall. The event is the culmination of two years of work. But here he was telling me that postponing it a year was exciting. He and I had brainstormed several new opportunities he could focus on if the event was postponed. These new opportunities would allow him to immediately serve his community and provide leadership in these challenging times. Another coaching client has been building up her credibility and authority around managing remote teams, a skill set that is suddenly in great demand. She could have been paralyzed by all of the opportunities in front of her, but she picked a few, asked for help, and trudged forward. She may not have felt ready for this, but knew her experience was exactly what companies needed right now, and to not act would mean to not help. I know you've been thrown a curveball the last few weeks. You made big plans for 2020, and the universe laughed. For some, there is no easy way forward, no simple pivot or new offering to launch. Some businesses are going to close after they face the harsh reality that slow or no business for a few months isn't a loss they can manage. For every business that shudders, there will be dozens that leap into the new gaps revealed by this new normal. The question is whether you'll leap or falter. Your challenge for this week, acceptance. That's an important step before you try to leap. Seeing and accepting what is happening allows you to start to see new possibilities. This is really hard to do by yourself, and I highly recommend finding someone to bounce ideas off of as you try to figure out how to meet the new gaps you're starting to notice. If you don't already have one, now is the perfect time to invest in a business coach. Someone who isn't attached to the outcome and can offer a sound strategy to help you get your business going in a slightly new direction. You likely don't have to burn down everything to figure out your new offer, and a business coach will help you avoid any rash decisions made while you're feeling like life is a bit out of control. Try this and let me know how it goes. Now, on to this week's interview. Today's guest is credited with convincing Guy Kawasaki and thousands of tech execs that Twitter would have real business value. In 2009, she founded the Twitter app store 140.com, bringing order to the chaos of Twitter's nascent app ecosystem. Just two years later, she sold it to HubSpot, where she worked for many years on influencer relations and the inbound event. As an inbound marketing evangelist, she has shown companies how to grow by helping people buy instead of cramming marketing messages down their throats. She is a professional speaker, lead author of Twitter for Dummies, and was one of the first to evangelize Twitter's significance for business, culture, and beyond. She's lectured at Harvard Business School and MIT Sloan School of Management, has been quoted in dozens of national publications, and raised $25,000 for Charity Water in December 2008 in the first ever Donate by Tweeting charity campaign. 
Building on her environmental science and policy degree, she founded the Enough Company to explain and evangelize market-driven shifts that can bring speed and scale to the climate crisis fight. Please join me in welcoming Laura Fitton, also known as Pistachio. (laughs) Thank you so much, Robbie. Hi, it's great to be here. Laura, thank you so much for joining us from your office in Boston, Massachusetts. As you know, this is a show about uh, building amazing networks and the context is leadership. So tell me, how do you define leadership and when did you realize you had the skills to lead? Well, I think leadership is a funny word because when I first hear it, I think, oh, no, 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 I'm a terrible boss. I'm, I'm, leadership isn't me. But of course, uh, leadership is so contextual. And I have been lucky to have these times in my career where I was saying things, whether it's literally out loud on a stage, whether it's uh, in some kind of executive briefing or whether it's online, that uh, seemed to catch on that people listened to, that people got excited about, that people started telling to other people. So when you start to see your ideas propagate in the world, I think it's possible to sort of stumble backwards into something like leadership uh, without realizing, oh, I have the skills to lead. (laughs) When I first heard the question, I I almost laughed like, oh, I don't. So, so leadership for you then is, is what, well, how would you define it though? Is it the ability to propagate your message and have people follow through on it? I think it's, it's discovering what unique perspectives you have that do resonate with other people. And I think something, uh, having put it that way, I realized that something that holds a lot of people back is they never quite get those ideas out of their heads. And I think what happened with me was, um, you know, I was bullied just enough in school to just not really care what people think of me anymore. And so I was just throwing a lot of stuff out there, um, both on Twitter itself, just in my tweets. Um, I had a blog that was totally unrelated to Twitter at the time, and I started blogging about Twitter there. And I was just so excited about what I was seeing and what I thought it could mean that I wasn't really tied to being right or not. I was just excited. And over time, you start to see which things you're excited about ripple outwards and which ones just sort of land with a thud. And it was really just, um, you know, being willing to do stuff over and over and not being all that upset if things fell flat. So it sounds like for you, I mean, I almost want to say right place, right time with the right ability and willingness to to speak up like you could have been in that place in time and not spoken up and shared what you were thinking and that wouldn't have been very helpful and if you try to do what you did then now everyone would be like yeah we know <laughs> so no, no it's so true and it took um you know i i used to joke that i parlayed one really good hunch into 10 years of career momentum um, but in a way that that is kind of what happened. I was very excited about for Twitter for about five years. Once I ended up at HubSpot, I had a whole new set of things to be excited about. None of it original to me, but lots of great ideas to help propagate and get out into the world. And again, when you know the idea is the strong thing, it's very, very easy to lead because you're, it's not about your ego. It's not about you. It's about, you know, this idea is going to help people. 
Um, so in terms of my own just hunches, I, I've gotten there again. I feel as strongly about the work of the Enough Company and the future of the climate economy now as I felt 12 years ago about Twitter. There's stuff that people don't quite know yet that can give us a lot of hope and a lot of momentum in getting out of the climate mess. In some ways, the way you're talking about leadership makes me think about fundraising and sales in the sense that you have to kick yourself out of the way and let the cause talk. You have to kick yourself out of the way and and share your bold idea because it's the idea that you're putting out into the world. It's it's the ego needs to be like held back. If it's too tied to ego, then you probably get nervous and don't want to do it. Or you're if it's not a sound idea, you're not willing to hear that and build on it and iterate. I want to know how this all started, though. Like, I want to dive way, way in the Wayback Machine, pre-Twitter. Let's go back to, like, grade school, the playground, high school. Like, what kind of kid were you? Like, were you active and engaged in a bunch of things? Were you outspoken even then? Or were you, like, like running for office, back of the room, like, dozing off? Like, what kind of kid were you? I was always outspoken. Um, that's just not something I can really control. I don't have much filter. Um, uh, but I was I was horrifically bullied. Uh, so again, you know, there was there was that was awful. But there was also some very empowering stuff that came out of that. And getting past, you know, the fear of how are people going to respond to me when people respond to you horribly, kind of no matter what you do you stop getting so uptight about it. And I would say by the end of middle school, beginning of high school, I was just finding the people I resonated with and you know that wasn't mattering as much anymore. Um, I did dive in at the very end of high school and get really involved in environmental activism. Uh, I joke, well, it's true. I, or, great, yeah. I organized my first protest march senior year of high school. We marched on the Connecticut State Capitol in defense of the forests, um, but it was in concert with student marches in 49 other states, the entire country. Um, actually, I think one or two states missed it, but it was a group called the Student Environmental Action Coalition I'd already gotten involved with in high school. And uh, that was an amazing experience. So I was always gung-ho to get out there and do stuff. And, you know, I had an energy that didn't always merge that well with the suburb I lived in. Um, but I learned a lot about, you know, dusting yourself off and keeping on going. You know, resilience is something that you can't teach people who haven't gone through adversity, you know? So it's, true. And it's, I, I feel like a lot of people, that's the thing that like later in life, lacking, lacking resilience is their downfall. So I'm sorry you had to go through that experience. Like, like bullying is just a horrific thing. And as a parent, it's a thing I'm now worrying about for my children. Um, you know, cause you're like, Oh no, what's going to happen as they go to school. Um, but, but you know, it sounds like you found your people cause that's what we're always trying to do, figure out where we belong. And then you found your activism. And I have to say, I, I don't, I haven't really shared this. I don't think on this uh, podcast in all these years, but one of my earliest activism was um, getting my, a district to set up a polystyrene recycling like plan. <laughs> That's awesome. So, you know, picture early nineties and uh, yeah. like, we thought polystyrene was going to like evolutionize, you know, boom, the world's going to be so different. And uh, it didn't quite happen that, that way. <laughs> but, 
all the burgers back then were in polystyrene. Yeah, yeah, and and the the trays and the cups, and uh, yeah, and I trained uh, and I got our school to set that up for Crossroad District. So you know, I, I'm with you on the on starting with the environmental impact, and we need more and more of that these days. So I'm thrilled what you're doing, and I'll hear in a minute about the Kinef Company. So I want to hear about your experience um, about making these shifts in life. You know, as you were graduating and moving on to college and beyond and getting into this first, you know, first parts of your career, what did you think you were going to be doing with your life? Like, where did you think all this was going? (laughs) How much time do you have? Um, So one of my other great strengths and weaknesses, because all weaknesses are strengths and all strengths are weaknesses, um, is I have an extremely short attention span. So I've gone through probably seven complete career reinvention pivots in my life. Um, starting during college, I you know took that activist energy off to Cornell and wanted to do an environmental science degree, which they didn't really have at the time. So I got into a program where I could take any class I wanted all over the university, and I built my own environmental science and public policy degree. Um, I got to do a semester in Washington. I published a couple of papers. Uh, it was amazing. And by the end of college, I was already sort of burning out on the policy side of that. So I literally ran away to sea. I was a cook on a schooner for three years. Uh, that gave me the chance to travel the world, live in Moscow, hitchhike in the British Isles. Um, I lived in a state park in Texas and went rock climbing every day for a while. And at the end of that career arc is when I first stumbled into the corporate world and just kind of did corporate communications, some branding, some project management, Um, you know, went from there to I was going to be a documentary filmmaker. So I I quit my job. I bought a camera. I followed a family down the Missouri River. Um, And in researching and getting, you know, kind of self-started in that I ran into somebody who had a TV startup and that ended up being my first startup. It was weather related. Um, from there I went, you know, and I'm, I'm glossing over many years in between. I think I worked for that startup for about two, three years. And then I worked for another two years for that startup's head, um, advisor, helping a bunch of different people who wanted to launch um, cable TV channels. And I sort of defaulted into this mode across actually several of the jobs I just rattled off where I was consistently either speaking or coaching the person who had to do the speaking. And so when the cable industry really kind of was coming down to its knees in 2001, and I finally got laid off from, you know, this niche um, cable television startups kind of thing I was doing, I went into freelancing, doing communications work, writing, but especially that speaker coaching. And so that was probably the most consistent thread throughout because when I stumbled onto Twitter in 2007, I'd been, you know, I'd had my kids and I had kept working, but really as a consultant, like 30 hours a month, Um, I was diving back into the workforce more like full time. I lived in a new city where I hadn't been. And so I started blogging about my speaker coaching work and my presentations training work. And it was the act of blogging that got me into the tech community, the social media scene, Twitter. I started writing about what I was seeing happen on Twitter. 
And um, that connectivity to the rest of the world, because I'm literally this, at that point, this homebound mom of two kids under two. And Twitter is my bridge to like humanity and intellect and art and science and, and all these people that I'd read about in Wired Magazine for years, but never imagined talking to or meeting or getting advice from. Um, so it was just this incredible Pandora's box that opened up at that point. And I just started telling anyone who would listen that Twitter was a serious business tool, which um, a lot of people laughed right to my face in 2007. Like I said, one good hunch. You know, I am so glad I have this podcast because you and I have known each other for more years than I can count and recently started to actually cross paths in person. But I don't know that I ever would have gotten to the point where I wouldn't have known that you had been on a sail, sailing the seas for three years and hitchhiking across the British Isles and, you know, living in a state park. Like, they're, they're, I love that part. Um, I also love that you identify the through line of the work, looking back at least, is speaking and, and coaching speakers, um, because that's still how you and I know each other is in that world. Um, and it sounds like slowly but surely you found your way. Uh, there's a willingness to sort of say yes. Is that kind of how this evolved? I think that's absolutely true. Um, and then the other through line is that ever since I was a little kid, I was very good at taking complicated things and just explaining them in, in plain terms. Um, so I was very, very lucky at Cornell to take a very small writing class uh, with a very remarkable person. Carl Sagan took about 20 of us into a class where we wrote about environmental issues. And what I learned watching his way in the world, how he would do stories in Parade Magazine and write articles. And he was very concerned about what was then called global warming, um, popularizing stuff that the scientists know is so important and can take so, so long. Because, I mean, we're talking about 30 years ago that this was uh, something that he would talk to the class about and we would try and write papers on. And, you know, it's, it's very sad how little has happened in those 30 years. But what I'm taking to my work now is that lesson I learned both when I was trying to evangelize Twitter and in watching other great evangelists and popularizers like Guy Kawasaki and Carl Sagan and, um, so many, so many brilliant people, Seth Godin, that what people need is reassurance and confidence and repetition and simplicity. Not because they're dumb, but because they're busy. So we're all busy. We all have so many competing priorities. If we're going to intake new ideas and change our behavior from them, they really need to be organized and presented in a way that they become accessible. I mean, think about, I don't know about you. I am terrible at errands. I hate running errands. I will have dry cleaning piled up on the bench by my door. I'll have a list in my head, maybe a list in my phone, and then I'll finally get it together to get out and get that errand done. Right. And so these are behaviors and goals that I have for myself that I want to do that I opted into, and yet it still takes me a while to actually execute. So if you just barrel into somebody with like 20 new ideas and expect them to actually take any action from any of it, 
it's just, it's not going to work as a, as a communication method. And so all the different ways in which I got to communicate with people through my career from, you know, hitchhiking to teaching cooking on the boat to um, getting up on stages and presenting, you know, kind of obscure tech that would eventually go mainstream. Um, that's really been the common thread is just trying to take complicated stuff and make it digestible. Yeah, it does feel like curation is the key in a world where information is available at the, you know, any second, you know, like whatever you want to know, you could know. And in some ways it's paralyzing because, you know, when I, especially when you're talking about something as big as the climate crisis, like, you know, I can't tell you how many times I've been in a restaurant reading the instructions for where do I put the the stuff that has to be thrown away slash recycled. <laughs> There's that long pause and you're in public and you're like, they've made it this like super complicated, you know, diagrams of pictures. And you're like, okay, where, you know, I was, I'm actually sitting here. I'm thinking about a place, you know, purple cactus in JP um, <laughs> that has like, literal like hand-drawn images about what goes where and i could stand there for five minutes trying to make sure i did it right um and then i'm like god this feels like a distraction from the work i should be doing to change the world you know um but i also feel like i should still do it but i'm like god this i can't be like well that action was enough you know like there should be some other thing i'm doing and i think you know what you're describing makes a lot of sense you've got the history and the experience what was difficult about making the decision to do this? Like what, what was the challenge in this? You've been, you've been evolving for years. Like this is a, a life well-lived, <laughs> a lot of yes ends I can see throughout your career. And now you're at this like, you know, this pivot point where you're like, this is a new thing I see that needs to be talked about. I have the ability to do it. How did you know that this was the right next thing? Honestly, I knew, um, I knew when I knew I'm a very, very emotional person. And I had just this insane magnetic pull towards working on this. Um, and it really showed because I had been wondering for a long time what I would do next. I loved HubSpot. Inbound was a great pleasure to work on and an absolute privilege. And I was having so much fun. I stayed there a very long time, eight years after the acquisition of my startup. Um, and, and, you know, during that time really never kind of came up with what I wanted to do next. So once I had the chance to take some time and really think it through, I realized my biggest career goal while I'd been at HubSpot was to be a great mom, actually contrasted to running a startup, you know, even as, as hard as people at HubSpot work, contrasted to running a startup, I had much more time and space to like put good things into the and this is very much a continuation of being a good parent for me. I look at my 13 and 14 year old kids and I hear their concerns and I see them seeing the eye, the world through their eyes and climate is absolutely huge for them. And what literally actually there, there was a very clear moment this fall when Greta Thunberg got up and looked at us all and said, you know, you adults knew this and you didn't do anything. And having literally written, I have it around here somewhere. I had literally written a 17 page paper on global warming for Carl Sagan's class. 
and then here I was, you know, I had done like tech and marketing and communications and entrepreneurship and capitalism, but I really hadn't gone back to climate. So the moment that nickel dropped in my head, it was just like, no doubt, nothing else. I've worked on this full time since October. Um, I hope someday eventually to make a living off of it, but that's not stopping me from getting up early every morning and, and grinding away at the research and the introductions and the writing and, you know, getting the website up and, and getting out and arranging speaking engagements and figuring out, you know, who we can work with and who I can advise. And honestly, I had a phone call Monday where I just noticed I knew someone who worked at a certain company that I had some climate ideas for. I just cold pinged him on LinkedIn and we did an hour and a half phone call, just all free advice. Like, Hey, you know, I think you could be doing this. I think your product's a natural fit for this. If you built this feature or partnered with this organization, you could have leverage at this. Um, all the while talking about things that would both help climate and help their business. So I just think there's a tremendous opportunity. And I think it's very easy to get frustrated and scared about climate. Um, to think of climate as something that, well, well, the climate economy, Laura, is that is that like environmentalist type spending more on products because they're climate friendly? And it's it's like, no, it's it's not that at all. Even if you know you're spending on a very, very subsistence level, we can talk about which foods are going to give you more health and value and give the planet more health and value while saving you money. And if you're on the crazy bazillionaire level, we can talk about getting you completely divested from fossil fuels. Oh, and by the way, invested in the kinds of companies that are going to grow as we swing through this crisis and move beyond it to a sounder future economy. So you just touched on this and I want to I wanna dig deeper. I'm curious how the people that you've known have been part of this transition? You know, like, did you feel like you were starting on your own or it sounds like you, you realized right away you could tap the network? This expansive, I, I imagine you have multiple circles of people in your network. <laughs> like I can I imagine this like crazy Venn diagram with you in the middle. Um, so, and you're nodding, so yes. So, you know, how did you think about your network as it related to you moving in this direction, particularly since, you know, how do you know who in the marketing sphere or who in the tech sphere also cares about this issue? You know, how, how did you know who to reach out to? Or was it like just these organic conversations as you started to realize this is your passion? So I'm blessed with a bizarrely sized and shaped network just by virtue of having evangelized a platform like Twitter. Um, and I never officially worked for them. I just was so excited that I would tell anyone who would listen that they really had to check it out and that they were not really seeing it for what it could be and, and stuff like that. So that led to, you know, having a huge network on Twitter itself. Um, and then also pretty unreasonably sized networks on Facebook and LinkedIn and in real life from going around speaking at conferences I don't have like face blindness, but I do have a really hard time remembering who I've met and who I've not met. So I actually run into trouble all the time uh, talking to people at events and they're like, oh yeah, yeah, we met these four other times. And I'm like, ah, that's great. So I'm a little bit done out, but that is really a gift 
uh, being able to know you're laughing because I just dropped the Dunbar number in there, right? That idea that you can keep about 150 people in your mind. It's been my privilege and honor to meet tens of thousands of people. So, you know, nobody's in my mind. I'm lucky I recognize my kids on the average day. But more seriously, um, that is just such a privilege and an honor. So the first few people I talked to were just actual friends would all say, oh, you know, well, there's so-and-so and there's this and there's that. Um, running back into people I already knew who are firmly ensconced in climate was super helpful. About the first four conversations I had in the Boston tech scene with people, they all kept saying over and over and over again, what about what Jason Jacobs is doing? Have you listened to Jason Jacobs' podcast? Hey, do you know Jason Jacobs? And of course, Jason and I had our startups right at the same time. He had RunKeeper. I had 140. Um, I actually remember before I even had 140 approaching him and trying to get him to hire me to be a Twitter consultant for RunKeeper. And he's like, why would I want a Twitter consultant? I'm like, because people could tweet their workouts. And he said, why would people want to tweet their workouts? I'm like, just trust me, they will. And he has since credited that with some of the early growth of RunKeeper as just being, you know, so uh, I was lucky to have known him then. I did start listening. He's doing this incredible, incredible podcast project. It is called My Climate Journey myclimatejourney.co is the webpage if you want to go check it out or you can ask any um you know device i won't say the name because mine will activate but you can ask any auditory device uh in your home that plays podcasts for you to say hey play me an episode i want to hear what this is all about he has done this incredible methodical year and a half probably longer than that journey where he has now interviewed 84 climate experts of all different sorts to really get to the bottom of what is going on, what can be done, how can people help. So with my pre-existing network and then with the community that's forming around that podcast and all the people who I was able to just listen to passively, um, some of whom through the podcast community I've, I've been able to like write to and get to know and, and you know, hopefully work with eventually. So it's a mix of, you know, well, I already had some network nodes that were good. Plus I'm just forging out and, and, you know, going and creating new ones, uh, very much with the help of Jason's work on that podcast. Um, and then other things like, you know, when I started the blog, uh, about a month ago, really, it's only been up about a month. One of the first articles off Bloomberg green, uh, which is another amazing thing that launched in the same time frame um, that the enough company has launched seeing the name Eric Rostin and realizing, oh, we, we were in a speaker bureau together. I know Eric and, and reaching out and chatting and catching up with him. So it just seems like the more you put out into the world about your specific thing, the more the right people show up or someone connects you to them. Um, I was having a, a DM conversation today on Twitter with a journalist I used to know in New York who's now inside a large company and he got all excited about the idea and he's going to introduce me to someone at his company. But he also knows one of the journalists whose articles I've been sharing a lot. And so he's going to introduce me to her. He's like, oh, you have to know each other. You'll just you'll love each other. So I think, again, going back to that leadership question, when it's idea forward, 
And when the idea isn't about yourself and your ego and your personal success, it's about a thing that you can see should exist in the world. And as soon as you describe it, other people agree. Um, that just makes the networking so painless. And so, you know, and, and I've seen like Jason has done a wonderful job of this himself with the podcast. He's gone in with beginner mind, with deep humility, with an earnest excitement about, Hey, what can some guy from the tech community with some consumer tech startup experience do for climate instead of just being like, Hey, you know, I'm going to be the expert now. And it's just been a wonderful to watch the way he built his network around him as well. And of course I'm directly benefiting from that too. I love these examples because it, it, it shows, I'd love to use the word nodes too. You Dunbar nodes. These are all great. Like, you know, like you I'm get this, you get this networking theory stuff is wonderful, but you do have these, these, uh, these starting off points in these different sort of areas. And you have now you know, this hub forming, of course, around Jason's work. So fortunate that he was doing that, but that you knew the people who knew him who, who could point out to you that he was doing it. Like that, you know, how horrible it would have been to discover that 10 years from now or four years right. from now or like, oh, right. really? Like the guy I used to know is doing this thing that's aligned with me and I've been struggling for three years to like get my stuff. You know, now you can be collaborative. And uh, I think you're right. This piece around leading with the idea and attracting people based on that. I also love that you are tapping into these probably like, you know, uh, latent, weak ties, you know, these 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 uh, connections that have to be rekindled to some degree, right? Absolutely. Like, these aren't people you've talked to a lot. So I'm yeah. curious, okay, how, do, like I get the Dunbar like limits that you have. <laughs> so you have your close network of people, but then you have sort of the second and third layer out, which is the, not quite the extremes of everyone in the world, but like second and third layer out people, which could include maybe the people you see once a year at a conference, uh, someone you worked with five years ago, but don't currently, a former client from 20 years ago, who knows, right? How do you nurture and sustain those kinds of connections so that now in a moment where you need to tap that network, it's not like Laura who? Uh, like right. how did you stay kind of current enough with, that sort of second and third layer out? I think that is such a great question uh, because if I'm honest, I kind of did with some and I kind of didn't at all with others. Um, the, the kind of did, the people who made sense for HubSpot made sense for inbound. Obviously in my influencer relations role, I was very conscientiously keeping up with them. And my favorite way to do that is just listen first, right? go to their page, look at what they're writing about, respond to something if appropriate. Don't wait and just, you know, hit them up when you want a favor. Get involved in their lives, their work, promote their work internally at the company when it makes sense, promote it externally on my own channels when it makes sense. Um, something I do that I guess is a little bit of a, you know, it's like I always do it, so it maybe gets predictable, but I like my reasoning behind it. Having been an entrepreneur, I know how hard hiring is. 
And whenever a friend announces their new job, they're usually kind of like, oh, I'm so excited. I got this job. And everybody's like, oh, Robbie, congratulations on your new job. And I always congratulate the company that hired them. I get in there and I comment and I'm like, oh, congratulations, such and so on getting you. Um, because that is a very real thing. Companies really struggle to find the right people. And if these are my friends and people in my network, I already know they're awesome and it's sincere. Um, but I think it's also, you know, again, we, we, we can like lose our ego and stuff and be afraid to, to put ourselves out there that way. So I think it's important for your friends to do it for you. Um, but I don't do that just to get a response. I do it because I really believe it. And that kind of low level, just paying attention to people, seeing their value and letting them know you see it again, especially when you're not asking for anything in return is super important. In other ways, I let parts of my network get very fallow um, during the time of, you know, 140, the startup, Twitter for dummies, the book that was all hitting at once. And it involved um, a very, very small level, but some level of internet notoriety. And that can be really challenging for women. I had a stalker, police had to get involved. I had, you know, just normal, like Twitter was a much more, it was a more abusive place there, but they had no tools for reporting abuse and they, they honestly didn't care. I mean, one of the people who would publicly abuse me and a bunch of other people on Twitter all the time um, Jason Calcanis, you know, who's like friends with the Twitter founders was like screaming at Twitter about what this account kept doing. And they're like, Oh, block it. You know? And he's like, it's saying all these horrible things to these women and rape threats. And, and they were like, meh, you know, it's the internet. Um, so I very much dialed down that very public side of my life. I had young kids. I'm a single mom. Um, I no longer needed to be out on the tightrope, tight out on the high wire, being the face of the brand. Um, you know, I was inside of HubSpot and that was much more important than anything individually I was doing. So I very much tuned down the kind of stuff I had been doing that got me there, um, which I'm, I'm okay with. I'm totally fine with. So it was a, it was a blend. So I, I think that uh, this idea that you know you were able to take everything that you've been doing manage all these different networks obviously in your evangelist role like you you were constantly connecting and reaching out to people but it does sound like there was a period of time where you know you just keeping up with like life was enough of a challenge um and this this environment you're describing also again i mean this is still true for women who are public and women who are online like just don't ever read the comments is basically the advice. Like, just don't read the comments. Of course, people do read the comments, but don't read the comments. Just, just don't, you know. Um, I, I can see how you still managed, even with all that, there's enough of a giving nature in you that people, here's how I would describe it. I call it the philosophy of abundance. And you were the kind of person who became known for giving rides to the airport. So the day <laughs> you needed a ride, you got it. And it wasn't from someone you'd ever driven. Like that's the philosophy of abundance in action, right? Like you become seen as the kind of person who's always kind of showing up, supporting, helping other people. And now you're in a position which you didn't necessarily expect. It wasn't like all that, like the last decade you were like, 
oh, and then I'm going to go out and do my own thing again. And I'm going to need all this. You, you, that's not how networking works. Like it's more of an insurance policy, right? Like, um, Absolutely. you know, uh, Jordan Harbinger actually came on and described that, you know, he, he left Art of Charm unexpectedly and rebranded and launched his own show bigger than ever very quickly. And it, it was his network that got him up and started again. And he never expected that, that he'd need them. That's absolutely true. Um, and, you know, again, it's easy for me to say, oh, I kind of let it slide and didn't do much with it. Um, but I have, I can't even say enough good things about uh, the network that I have um, been privileged to end up with. And, and I'm still really humbled. I don't have the right words for like how that all came to be. So you've already mentioned your your website, but tell folks how they can follow you and learn more about your work. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I would love it if they wanted to drop their email address on enough.co. Once a week, I send out a newsletter and it's really just mostly my social shares from the week. Well, we're going to have that link and also links to your LinkedIn and Twitter on the uh Show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Laura, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Robbie. It was a pleasure. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Laura. Such a pleasure to speak with her and learn about her leadership journey. What is your key takeaway from our conversation? Something you'll put into action this week that you'll benefit from for years to come. Share what resonated with you in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Look for episode 190. That's also where you'll find all the links and resources to today's show, as well as nearly 200 archived episodes on this Pinterest-inspired page. Reach out and let me know which were your favorite interviews. I'm a relationship-based business strategist, and I have the capacity to work with two more coaching clients at this time. Are you ready to invest in yourself and your business? To get started, I offer a complimentary strategy session to learn about your business goals and to see if we'd be a good fit. Interested? Send me an email to start or continue a conversation. My email address is Robbie at RobbieSamuels.com. If you enjoyed this episode with Laura, please share it with your friends and don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss next week's show. Remember, subscribing is always free. Are you a fan? That's awesome. I'd love to read your review on Apple Podcasts. It's easy to find our page at itunes.ontheschmooze.com. Thank you in advance and look forward to connecting again next week. We'll be interviewing another talent professional who has achieved success in their field or industry. I'll ask probing questions to get them to share untold stories about their leadership journey and how they built and sustained the professional network. Until then, have an amazing week. Thanks for listening to On the Schmooze podcast at www.ontheschmooze.com. That's On the Schmooze, S-C-H-M-O-O-Z-E. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.